I am Sumit Gupta and this is Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams at work and life. This is a podcast for people who know deep inside that there is more. Have you achieved a great deal of success, but on the inside you still feel empty and like an imposter? Do other people see you as a strong leader and you wonder why it still feels so lonely and suffocating? The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. I dare to speak to the tremendous power which you already have rather than what you believe are your strengths and limitations. This podcast is called Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. And this is the Leadership Journey series. I am interviewing leaders with an interesting story to learn how they got where they are today. We all have a lot to learn from each other's stories of where we started, where we are now and our successes and struggles on the way. With this series of interviews, my attempt is to give leaders an opportunity to share their stories and for all of us to learn from their generous sharing. Yaro was named in 2015 as one of the top 100 creatives in the US. He has directed projects with people like Richard Branson, The Rock, and PDD. He is the founder of Hatch, which is a global network of experts solving challenges inspired by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. He is also an Aspen Institute Fellow, a RSA Fellow, and a member of Catalyst 2030. He was honored with the Oddfest Impact Award in 2019 and has led think tanks with Intel, Ernst & Young, NASA, and spoken at TEDx, VivaTech, EarthX, and many other summits. Yaro opened up about his childhood and shares how he was bullied at school where he was the only white boy. He speaks about how this experience allowed him to build empathy later on and understand his own privilege as a white man. He shared how this led him to start an organization looking to find the superhero in every person and how it continues to shape his leadership. Hello, Yaro. Hello, Summit. How are you? I'm doing quite good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Uh, to begin with, can you share a little bit about yourself and what do you do? Certainly. I'm, I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called Hatch, which is a nonprofit that was started 18 years ago in 2004 with the purpose of finding and connecting diverse thought leaders from across different industries, perspectives, ethnicities, cultures, ages, to come together and work on accelerating each other's work and global and local challenges to hatch a better world. Wonderful. So that sounds like a lofty vision. I'm, I'm very keen to, to learn more about how you came up uh, with this vision and how you reached where you are today. I grew up in Montana in the U.S., which is very small population in the middle of nowhere and Big skies, vast horizons, I think it inspired me to dream. Um, but when I moved to Los Angeles, I was there for nine years. I ended up starting a company there based on the premise of finding and connecting real life superheroes. And we grew that. It was one of the, the pioneers in social networking from 99 and 2003 before Facebook and MySpace uh, called Super Dudes or the Hero Project. And we would find composers and educators and every, 
you know, scientists and connect them together. But also part of that message was to everyone that you have this real life superhero within you. And you were asked a few questions to define and uncover and unleash that inner superhero. And there's a whole gamification model where you get rewarded. How do you save the world? Start with where you are. Type in your zip code and you're given 10 things you can do within a three mile radius of where you live in your backyard. And so we started moving people out into their communities and rewarding them for park reclamations and uh, walking dogs to the Humane Society and reading for the elderly and things like that. So we ended up growing that community to about a million and a half people before it was acquired by Fox Studios. And at which point I was pretty sad and thought that I found my purpose. And then suddenly it was caught up in an acquisition. And then I realized that, of course, there is still the purpose and not the brand. And the purpose was still to go find and connect real life superheroes. And that's where Hatch was born as a platform for mentorship, pure top down, bottom up, to bring thought leaders of all ages together to work on accelerating these solutions. Interesting. So you, you talk about real life superheroes and, and you also mentioned that you know, each one of us have that inside us. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. The process that we walked people through was a series of questions. And one of those questions is what's make, what makes you unique? We all have something that makes us unique. There, there's also this kind of Venn diagram between that and what what you're happiest when you're doing and what the world needs most. At some point, like 10 years later, someone pointed out to me that there's this ancient Eastern philosophy called the Ikigai, the Japanese concept for a reason for being. And it's this Venn diagram of what you love, what you're good at, what you can be paid for and what the world needs. And in the center there is this mashup of passion, mission, vocation, and profession. And so we were using this framework unknowingly that this is a sort of an ancient philosophy, but one of the things that we found really fascinating was just the, the very exercise, um, the process itself, watching young people and then pe really people of all ages, but walk through this process and start to envision this best self that they have within them. And then all the molecules in your body begin to conspire to manifest that best self. And so we started getting letters from you know, child psychologists and parents and teachers thanking us for the work that we were doing because we were shifting self-esteem and confidence and uh, self-worth. It was really fascinating. Like we had, we were very <laughs> entered into that space unknowingly. We knew that it was inspirational. We wanted to create a platform for the next generation to look up to that we're not just athletes and entertainers, but also you know, philosophers and scientists and, and every, the everyday person around us, the people in your homes and your communities and so forth. Yeah. And I'm also very interested in how did the circles came together for you? Like, how did you figure out that this is what you were really passionate about? Uh, is there any event, any particular event from your life, either, either positive or negative, which shaped you into realizing that this is something which you want to spend the rest of your time doing? My mom and I, I grew up with a single parent mo mother and it was just she and I, she left my father when she was just leaving grad school and I was two and a half and uh, he had been, he was later diagnosed schizophrenic, but at that moment it was just an abusive relationship. Uh, so she loved, you know, with 25 cents in her pocket, said she was going to the grocery store and, and never went back. And so my whole childhood was her and I moving through the world for her working several jobs and cleaning houses and toilets and so forth to try to put herself through her family's first college degree. 
what she did, she graduated undergrad in Minnesota and then grad school in Montana. And I think that when I was second, third, fourth, fifth grade, her tenacity and warrior mindset really shone through. And for a while, some of the houses, like four or five houses in a row that we were living in were government subsidized and uh-huh. were condemned and bulldozed. And her first job out of grad school was at the Rocky Boy Indian Reservation in Northern Montana. And so when we moved there, uh, I was really excited. I thought, well, finally she got a job and we're moving up in the world. And, and it, that was a pretty significant inflection point, pivotal point for me, I moved to the reservation with her and I was the only white, uh, child in the whole school and they called me little custard and I got beat up every other day anytime they, they could catch me before I could get home. And so I, I started growing this chip on my shoulder and when we moved away, I'd stopped playing cello and musical instruments and started lifting weights and I was pissed off at the world. And then I ended up running into a bunch of those kids a couple years later and I had kept growing and they'd stopped growing. And and there was a moment where I thought like, now's my chance for retribution. And I said, was, this was at a basketball tournament in high school. And I took two steps toward them and just realized like, and this flash of thousands of images of years of hate and where that comes from and the why behind it. And just had this sort of visceral moment of recognizing you can be another link in that chain or part of the solution. And just recognize as a white male that I'd been given an opportunity to see things a little bit differently. and. So it was a real empathy expander in that moment, even at that age, which I feel like that was a real inflection point for me to want to try to make the world around me a brighter spot and a brighter place. And I've been driven by that ever since. Very interesting. How did you turn that around? Because I I can imagine that could be a very tough experience. And what you mentioned was that you were the only white person growing up there. And now yet, when you told your story, you also mentioned the privilege of being white and allow, having that experience, allowing you to build empathy. So can you share a little bit on how did that shape your vision about what you want to do with your life? Certainly there, there was, I, I think the first piece to it was just recognizing the hurt people and that there's origin stories for that pain and to take the moment or to really sit and ask the question of why this person is feeling like that. In that moment, I just recognize it's not really me that they're angry at. I'm, I'm a stand in for a lot of injustices that have occurred and moving through life. I think for my college years, I wasn't maybe quite as conscious about, I was just blowing off some steam and trying to get through school and was really preoccupied by my true passion of filmmaking and directing and, and philosophy, but. By the time I got to Los Angeles and we tapped into this, this sort of energy source of helping people understand how to unleash their inner superhero, at first it was fun and then it turned into like really meaningful work and all these light switches flipped on. And that, that was the beginning of my journey in very intentional impact. It, it hasn't stopped. I continue to learn we, the last two years have been full of a lot of stretching and expanding and learning. And as we've been locked down in a pandemic and witnessed, you know, the murder of yet another black man at the hands of injustice with George Floyd and several others and Arbery and Brown Taylor, it's, it's just, you know, it continued to, I continue to recognize the disparities that occur 
every single day in the United States and, and around the world, but this is where I spend most of my time. And as an organization, Hatch has been aligned with the 17 SDGs, but in the last few years, we've really honed our focus into these four impact pillars of equity, education, environment, and empowerment. And then that last one is geared specifically around mentoring the next gen. So that's, it's really every year, I think that there's a, a, a time at the end of each year to reflect on uh, where we are and, and how we can continue to improve and show up and what our value is to the rest of the world and how to scale that not necessarily wider, but deeper. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think what you shared about the superheroes in all of us is also very closely tied to what I do because I help people see how powerful they are and sometimes how they can understand themselves because of what they listen to all day. And, and all of those things which you mentioned, while all of that is, is a reality of the world we live in, I also see a lot of reason for hope, a lot of leaders taking those next big steps because of the technology, because of every opportunity that we have today that we did not have before. Yet, however, those stories are never shared in the media. So coming back to the work which you do currently, right? What, what is it that you find most challenging in, in doing that work, taking your vision forward? It's interesting. There's, there's a few different answers to that. I think one of the, the biggest challenges that I, I feel that like our organization faces, but it's not just ours, it's, it's a lot of organizations that are trying to do well in the world is the notion around philanthropy and funding and measurement and metrics. There's a lot of the work that we do that is harder to measure. And now that's becoming a more strident conversation in a lot of different circles. There's a lot of calls to reimagine philanthropy. We're working on an initiative to, to help build out a shared action framework and a charter and an alliance of multiple organizations to work together to retool philanthropy reimagine it so that it's less tethered to the metrics and also it's like long overdue to have these conversations with funders having the communities that they impact at the table in those discussions and one of the biggest challenges for us is the measurement and metrics that lead to funding to continue to expand the work we're definitely not alone in that there's a lot of amazing nonprofits and smaller organizations that struggle with getting it on the radar of the foundations that has a $96 trillion annual economy and 95% of which sits on the sidelines every year. So at a time in which we're literally watching this window close of opportunity in which we can rescue the planet through environmental and climate crisis and the, the increase of the equity disparity, there are some progressive foundations that have moved to sunset, uh, which means to wind their foundation down and spend out all of their funding because they see the urgency, but there's a lot of other foundations that have not yet caught on to the fact that this is a, a fairly unique moment in time for humanity. You raised this very important uh, question or debate around measurement and metrics. So I, I want to hear from you because when we talk about leadership, when we talk about empathy, when we talk about trust. There are things which, uh, which uh, at least in my opinion, can't be measured. Um, and yet when we operate in, in, in a business world or in a funding related or in a measurement related world, how do we show our progress? How do you balance that, uh, that need for metrics, need for measurement with, with the intangible stuff? One example of that was I had a meeting at a big tech company a few years ago and 
they were asking what our KPIs were, what our, you know, impact and metrics and so forth and reach. And in their mind, they can align with one, uh, celebrity or influencer who brings them 5 million or 10 million KPIs or 20 million KPIs impressions. Like we don't really, that's not how we operate. Like the way we operate is we bring a hundred people at a time together. And from those hundred people, if the right curation, it's like almost like taking musical notes and putting them on a, a staff, right? Or like a, the, the grid to, to create the harmony. If you have the right notes, you get the right harmonies. And in this case with the humans, the, the human capital that we bring together, we bring a hundred of the right people together that could lead to collaborations that could impact the lives of a hundred million. But those are seeds, the seeds that are planted there are, are Jack and the Beanstalk seeds, one out of every 30 sort of sprout and plow through the clouds into the upper stratosphere. But you have to track those over time. And so they're more anecdotal. Oftentimes you might even lose track of the person who's the collaboration that you help curate leads to the initiative that creates that change or impact. At a human level, the motto that we had for the hero projects, how do you save the world? Start with where you are, which in that case was uh, geographical and communal. We've carried that over to Hatch, but it also means a little bit more internal inside yourself. Like, how do we change the world? How do we save the world? It's like to start with ourselves inside. It can't be as great of service to the rest of the world without truly knowing ourselves and working on ourselves and doing, you know, inner work. And I think that you know, I had a, a conversation last year in 2020 with a fellow named John Hagel, who's this, you know, Silicon Valley leadership guru, and, uh, he's been. He was at Deloitte for many years, was the founder of Center for the Edge and part of the Hatch Network. And I asked John, this was three months into COVID, and I was like, John, are all of your clients, his C-level or CEOs of tech companies, are they calling you? And he's like, yes. Like, what are they saying? They're asking how to get back to normal. What do you, what advice do you give them? He's like, not to get back to normal. Normal was broken. How do we help transform these large systems, these organizations, these companies? And he's like, we don't. We transform the leaders within those companies or organizations. And I'm like, well, how, how, how do you propose we do that? And it's like through opportunity-based storytelling and the opportunity-based storytelling is different than the world's on fire or leading with fear. It's all about this protopia, this, this opportunity for a better tomorrow. And John Hagel's written a lot of really amazing books. You can go to johnhagel.com and, and check out some of his leadership books, but he's done a incredible amount of research and data aggregation around leadership and passion and what sort of, you know, helps leaders move forward in the world. But with Hatch, we find different forms of leaders. We find people who visibly look like they're on top of the world. And we also find people that are in the trenches, digging through the, the heart of big, hairy challenges. And we also find next gen leaders, which in some cases, they don't even know that they're leaders yet. They're just 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, come to hatch and see these, you know, wizards and astronauts and technologists and founders and people that are inventing new solutions for the world and their whole horizons expand. And suddenly they, they recognize that what's possible is so much greater than what they knew three days earlier. And that leads to you know, transformation and, and wanting to be a part of the solution. In many cases, a lot of youth that come through the Hatch Summit or the Hatch programs have an increased recognition that they can make a major difference in the world. And those are, those are intangible 
but also very tangible, just hard to measure metrics. I, I, I think I, I also struggle with the same. And I think that's why I asked this question and especially dealing with the business world and leadership, because there's a lot of intangibles around leadership when building relationships, when inspiring people, when uh, having them inspired to take some action, not because of fear, but actually because of a larger vision. So that, that is a constant struggle for me as well to create that balance and to be able to communicate that value that goes around leadership and human relationships. So my next question would be considering the challenges that you have in the long term, but also in the recent term around COVID, how do you manage pressure and overwhelm and how do you deal with that and create breathing space for yourself? It's an interesting question. And there's been a few situations recently where I've had to really sit and be patient and pause to absorb a lot of complex information and conflict around different parts of, you know, the world is in many cases is feels like it's falling apart at the seams. And there's this good friend of mine, Pete Strom, once spontaneously just said, yeah, we're in this race between consciousness and catastrophe. And what, if we feel like we're losing that race, there's an urgency there. And yet that urgency is not always, I think that with world leaders, it's important for us to move to solutions around climate sooner than later, because otherwise we'll not be able to inhabit this planet long-term. To answer your original question is I have to sit with things for a while. The lessons that I've learned in you know, in the last couple of years is to be patient and I'm not a very patient person. There's another friend of mine in the hatch never been Christine Lime, who told me recently that she metabolizes emotional information really quickly. Like it just goes right through her. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I just recognize I, I do not, I, it sits in me for a really long time, like a really long time. So the way that I, uh, navigate that is to just be patient and, and and meditate on it and go and just spend time just letting it roll around without needing to rush to a solution. Thank you for being open and sharing that. I, I would say I'm, I'm going through a good time in my life, at least this year. But even then, this morning when I woke up, I, I don't know why, but I woke up with a lot of anxiety. And it was especially around what you exactly shared around climate change and uh, I think I was reading some news about the COP26, which we recently finished. And then there was this sense of urgency that the world needs to, and there's something which I've realized working with people is that when I try to bring my anxiety out or when I try to bring my eagerness out in a way that tends to push people, it does not work. Or in fact, it creates resistance. So I was in that state that uh, the world needs to change. I need to do something. Yet I knew that if I were to spoke out from that state of anxiety, it would actually not help or it would actually create friction rather than momentum. Uh, so thank you for being open about that and sharing that. Yeah, there's a Jane Goodall quote that, that I call upon in my mind often. She says, thousands of years from now, a species very similar to our own will be looking back and wondering how we let all of these other species just die. Every day there's like a new species that literally just gets eliminated from our planet. So, but it would be of little use the work that I or anyone else is doing if we just gave up because there is still so much worth fighting for. We can't fall into apathy. And we're at that, that moment where everywhere we look, the weather systems are behaving differently each year. And there's a Michelle Thaler, who's a, an astronomer at NASA last year shared this piece of data that came out from NASA. They've been tracking over the last 50 years and they had projected 
when this ocean rise would occur. And originally this two to four foot ocean rise was projected to be sometimes about 110 to 20 years out. And that's now been moved up into the lifetime of our children. But before the end of the century will be this three to five foot ocean rise with the carbon that's already been emitted into the atmosphere. And when you start thinking about what the inhabited coasts that will be impacted by that, there's billions of people that will be migrating and forced to relocate, which then crushes resources and creates war and famine and ripple effects are, are really scary. Conversely, you have people that are doing work in reforestation and soil rehabilitation, Ryland Englehart in a piece that kissed the ground who recently released an, an amazing film with the same title. That, that film mathematically shows how if we're able to start creating different sort of incentives for farmers to use regenerative practices instead of pesticides and chemicals, that we can rehab the soil within mathematically it's possible to start sequester the carbon that's already been released. And so there's these bits of hope. We have to, to move really fast. Yes. Indeed. So what advice would you give to somebody who has a, a big dream and passion, but it has been on hold for whatever reason? Here's that old, one of my favorite old proverbs. I think it was a Japanese proverb, but the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And so if you have passions, even put it on hold is, there's really no excuse to just even depends on the dream, of course, and what resources are needed, but starting with writing something down every single day on a piece of paper, start aspirationally, like what you might, what does it look like when you're successful five years from now, paint that picture, write a story as if it's already, already happened. And you're looking back on it, that starts to lead to the ability to map out like first next steps and then asking people, asking the universe, like staring into the stars at night and say, please bring me this thing that I need for my first next step. And that was how my first company started. It was just asking the question of all these, I just, I thought I was moving to Los Angeles to be inspired by all these incredible human beings every single day. And a couple of years in, I was just looked up at the stars and said, where are they? And this man, like literally just appeared next to me. He's like, who? I'm like, whoa. And it felt a little metaphysical, but, <laughs> but he happened to be there visiting from Czech and Slovakia. He was teaching deaf kids how to read and play music. And I was just knocked over by that answer. And, but in reflection, a lot of people just forget to ask the universe. And that means a lot of different things, a lot of different people. It could mean prayer. It could mean asking your friends uh, or family, but identifying what it is that you need and being able to ask for that and advocate for it is a really clear first step in wanting to pursue dreams and passions and aspirational accomplishments. Thank you for that insightful answer at multiple levels. I think one thing which I am discovering is that our, our wildest dreams and what we what we think is beyond us is much closer than we think it is. And what you shared, asking for what you need, either from the universe or from people around you on a more tactical basis is sometimes a lot of us miss out either because of our fears or, or some imaginary illusion about either we don't have the resources or, or we don't have the skills and capabilities. Thank you for sharing that. Certainly, Summit. My pleasure. Is there a commonly held belief around leadership which you disagree with or which you have yourself come to change your view over time? I just really proactively practice 
um, surrounding myself with people that I think are much more intelligent than myself. So I've, I feed very much off of other people's ideas and intellect and excitement and passions and ideas. Our board of directors, for instance, is made up of a really diverse group of people that I have a huge amount of respect for. One of the benefits of uh, running Hatch is that I'm constantly in search of finding these incredible people. Then we get to bring them together and then spend time with them and connect great relationships with them. So the whole Hatch network and Hatch community are a source of knowledge and inspiration and wisdom for me, as are the Hatch team, uh, the people that have, you know, been attracted to the mission and the work. And so I, I feel like I'm constantly surrounded by amazing leaders. And I, and as a result, I get to grow from that. Yeah, I think having that right support structure of people who can challenge you, who can hold you accountable, but at the same time support you and point you into an area maybe which you're not seeing. Yeah. Yeah, the the mentorship piece of it is, and that, that's a big, it's a big broad word. It can mean a lot of different things. It can, you know, be a, a passing word in an elevator that could shift your trajectory forever. When I was in, when I was like 10 or 11, I had a big brother in the Big Brother Sisters program. His name is Howard. And... It's a program that services families with single parents. And so I was able to go, you know, bowling and learn how to play chess and, you know, shoot a basketball and so forth with Howard. And that was like a, a significant inflection point for me that through that program's exposure to mentorship, the ripple effect of that is that I created two mentorship platforms that, you know, when I was, when I, as an adult, one with the Euro project, one with Hatch and. So finding a mentor that you can have a consistent relationship with, even if it's like once a month for 30 minutes and being able to bounce ideas off of each other or do check-ins with accountability, as you just mentioned, that's another pretty low lift and very effective way of personal growth. I think one of my biggest discoveries about human beings is that we are social beings. And yet I, I see a lot of leaders trying to do it alone trying to find it difficult to ask for help uh, because uh, they don't like being vulnerable or they, they see it as a weakness. And uh, this is one superpower to be able to ask for help and to be able to ask for what you need. So thank you for uh, sharing that and bringing that to attention. Sir, yeah, my pleasure. And I'm curious uh, how, what sort of keeps you up at night and gets you out of bed in the morning around the concept of leadership? What is it that that drives you in this space? Yeah, for me, there are two things. One is as human beings being able to speak to each other about any issue without fighting, without hating, without killing each other. As we get more globalized, as we get more connected, our views, which would earlier be restricted within communities, are now expanding and we are suddenly bouncing those boundaries, which we would otherwise not. To take an example, nationalism there is a very good value, which has driven a lot of inspiration over the years. But now in the age of Twitter, in the age of global internet, I see so many countries and religions and groups fighting against each other just because their stories are now reaching out to other communities and in a way that it is offending them. And then these two people who earlier had no ways to communicate, now suddenly they are in communication because of that internet because of technology and yet we do not know how to talk, how to share our ideas and opinions without having them hurt somebody else. So that's one thing. And the second thing is around workplaces and, and about productivity and well-being in workplaces. 
suicide and depression are the, are the leading causes of, of death. Uh, and that's a very tragic thing that we have reduced diseases, yet we have in somehow managed to increase stress, we have managed to increase and depression and mental illness. The next uh, thing which keeps me awake is to see workplaces where we can do good, we can use business as a platform for good on our planet, yet at the same time making sure that the people who work in these businesses, their well-being is taken care of, but they also find meaning and purpose in, in what they do. Because I see work as a vehicle for really being joyful. And people are seeking a lot more from work than just a salary and, or just an existence. Uh, and that's what keeps me busy. Thank you for that context. I appreciate that. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I, I think we are mutual passengers in this journey. If uh, any of our listeners want to connect with you and find out more about what you do, do you recommend any particular platform or way they can reach out? Probably LinkedIn is the easiest. Yaro Craner, Y-A-R-O-W-K-R-A-N-E-R. Or you can also reach me through the contact button on hatchexperience.org. And yeah, I'm always keen to meet new amazing people. And I imagine that your listeners are amazing human beings. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Yaro, for your time and for your deep insights. And I wish you the best for your journey ahead. Thank you, Summit. Let's, uh, let's have a blossoming and flourishing 2022 and beyond. Sure. Wonderful. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Summit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but also for those around you. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. I say what might be uncomfortable for me to say or for you to hear to show you that all our dreams which have been on hold are within our grasp. If you like the sound of it, do not forget to leave a rating. I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at deployyourself.com slash newsletter. You can also reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook to share any other comment or feedback. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved, and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.